You're in for a great study this evening. It's going to be interesting. We're going to have a lot of fun. There's also going to be some uh, just powerful, powerful lessons in the chapter. Uh, and last week, I was just so excited to begin studying the life of Joseph. You know, I knew when we went into the book of Genesis, I'm like, okay, there's going to be some weird stuff. But here's the thing, you know, if you're a pastor, you're like, you know, Joseph is coming up in that back quarter of Genesis and Joseph is, is just like money. Like you can't mess that up. The story is just so good. It's pure gravy if you're a preacher. And I forgot that the book of Genesis cuts away from Joseph's story for chapter 38 before returning to it in chapter 39. And I forgot how incredibly weird chapter 38 is. And trust me, it's, it's weird. It's weird, which is why it's rarely taught in church. You see, what normally happens is the pastor will get there and he'll say, you know what? Story of Joseph is going so well. Why are we going to mess up when we've got a good thing going? Let's just skip over that and keep going with the story of Joseph. But we know that 2 Timothy 3.16 on your outlines tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture. This is one of those weeks when I was starting my prep. I just sat in my office for a few minutes just saying the phrase, all scripture, all scripture, all scripture. And we're actually gonna find that to be true today. There's gonna be some very difficult but very important lessons regarding some very difficult issues. And this chapter is also gonna serve to highlight the contrast between the path of integrity and right living that Joseph will choose and the life that his brother Judah will choose. You'll recall from last week's study that Judah was the brother who had the idea to make some money by selling Joseph as a slave rather than simply killing him. And you'll also recall we mentioned that Judah is a Hebrew name uh, when the world becomes essentially Greek or Hellenist as they call it, which is Greek culture uh, dominant. Uh, many people's names get changed a little bit into their Greek versions. And so a lot of people even in Palestine, which is Israel at the time of Jesus, are using the Greek versions of their Hebrew names. So when we see Judas showing up as a disciple of Jesus, his literal Hebrew name would have been Judah. It's just Judas because Greek culture is dominant at that time, and that is the Greek version of his name. And so when jewelers sell diamonds or, or, or diamond rings, you've probably seen this before, they'll often showcase them or present them on a background of, of black velvet, you know, the black velvet cloth. And the reason they do that is because it highlights the contrast between the diamond and the fabric. It makes the diamond appear even more brilliant and even more beautiful against that backdrop of black. And so that's the idea of what's going to happen here. Chapter 38 is going to be the black velvet to the diamond that is Joseph in chapter 39. Judah's the black velvet, Joseph's going to be the diamond, and we're gonna see this incredible contrast between the two in consecutive chapters in the area of how they deal with lust and temptation. One's not gonna do so well, one's going to do really well. And so with that, let's jump into chapter 38, verse one. We read, and it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. So as our story opens, we find one of Jacob's sons, Judah, leaving his family, departing from his brothers, and heading out with a guy named Hira. His family, Judah's family, were all believers. Very messed up believers, but believers nonetheless. Is there any other kind, really? The place they were living was called Hebron, which you might recall means fellowship. So, so here's the picture as we start. Judah, a believer, 
leaves the place of fellowship, leaves the father, and leaves the family of believers to go hang out and live among non-believers instead. Is he still a son of the father? Absolutely. Is he still a brother? Absolutely. Is he making a foolish decision? Absolutely. How's it gonna go for him? Well, as I am fond of telling my kids, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So make a note of this. Judah leaves the place of fellowship with the family of believers to go do life with non-believers, to go do life with non-believers. He sees no value in doing life with believers over non-believers. Verse two, and Judah saw there, when he moved to this new pagan territory, a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. That's the old school way of saying he took her as a wife. Super classy, I know. So Judah does something that nobody in his family was supposed to do because they followed the Lord. None of them were supposed to marry a pagan woman. None of them were supposed to marry a woman who didn't serve the God of their father, Jacob. And why does he do this? Because he makes a decision based on what he sees. It says, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. So without the family of believers around him, Judah is free from all those pesky people who say things like, hey, I know she's good looking, but she doesn't serve the Lord. You guys are not going in the same direction in life. The only person he can ask for advice is his pagan pal, Hira, who inevitably said something like, well, she passes the eye test. That's all there is to it, really. So make a note of this. Free from the council of believers, Judah marries a non-believer. Free from the council of believers, Judah marries a non-believer. And then we read in verse three, so she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur, Ur. The name Ur means, means watcher or watchman. And the idea is someone who, who sees clearly all around him, who has vision and perception. And some scholars suggest that Judah goes with this name because having separated from the family of believers, he now feels like he's enlightened. He now feels like he's seeing things clearly. And I think the rest of the text is gonna point to that. He kinda says, you know, I was, I was constrained before living with the family of believers, but, but now I see clearly that I should just be doing the things that make me happy. I'm enlightened now, so make a note of this. Judah believes that separating from the family of believers is allowing him to live his best life. He believes that separating from the family of believers is allowing him to live his best life. And again, we're gonna see how this works out for him. Verse four, she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shalah. He was at Shezeb when she bore him. The name Shezeb means false, which is kind of a warning flag here, when she bore him. Verse six, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Judah finds this, this good looking woman and he says, you know what? I gotta hook her up with my son, Ur. Matches her up, marries them. And the interesting thing is that the name Tamar means, um, it means palm tree or, uh, or specifically to be erect. So Bible scholars suggest that she was likely um, very tall. Uh, verse seven, 
don't know what you guys were thinking, but uh, verse, verse 7, but uh, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. This is entire biography right there in the Bible. Wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. We have no idea what he did that was so detestable to the Lord, but obviously, it's pretty bad. I mean, the guy's living in pagan territory. There have temple prostitutes all over the place, but whatever this guy does is so bad, God's like, no, you're done, you're dead. And you might be thinking, well, seems a little harsh. A little harsh, God, but, but, but keep in mind, if he was a believer who was doing wicked things, then he went to heaven. But God had to limit the damage he was doing to the reputation of God on the earth. The Bible says there's a sin that leads to, to death. And there are instances in the Bible, we can't get into them today because of time, but there are examples where a believer will get into sin, won't repent, and they're doing so much damage to the reputation of God because everyone knows they're a Christian, but they're living like they're not, that God says, okay, time's up, you're coming home. And they go to heaven, but God stops the damage to his reputation on the earth. If he was a non-believer, and the Lord knew that he would never repent, then the more wicked things he did, the more harshly he would be punished for eternity in hell. And so God would be limiting his wickedness in order to limit his punishment, much like Jesus did, if you'll recall, when he switched to speaking in parables rather than plainly. You might recall the, the great misconception is that Jesus speaks in parables to make things simpler. It's not true. He says specifically that he switches to speaking in parables so that those who do not want to listen to him will not be able to understand him so that they won't be responsible for receiving even more revelation and rejecting Jesus. So if Ur is a, a non-believer, then God is actually saving him even worse torment in hell. But in both scenarios, God is doing good to the people of the earth by removing a wicked man from among their midst. So just some things to keep in mind if you're wondering why the Lord might do this or if it's okay for the Lord to do this. Now there was a cultural practice you need to be aware of before we go any further. A woman at this time, it was a very patriarchal society and, and women were not allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to have jobs that paid them money. They weren't allowed to receive any type of inheritance. So if an adult woman became a widow, she would have to have a man to care for and provide for her or she would essentially become homeless, have no way of earning money and would die. So when a man died, it was customary that if he was married, that man's oldest brother would take his wife as his own wife, thus ensuring the woman's welfare. This practice is known as Leverite marriage, and it comes from the Latin word levir, which simply means husband's brother. And this wasn't just a, a Jewish custom. This was all over the world. There was this sort of practice going on. But additionally, in the Hebrew culture, if a man died without having a son, the first son that was born to his wife and his brother would count as the dead man's first son. And this would ensure that his family line and family name continued into the future. And this practice would actually be written into the law of God by God in Deuteronomy 25. And I was just thinking about this. I would imagine that it would make the brothers in a family very involved and opinionated when one of them was choosing a future wife. Can you imagine? Because they knew that there's a chance that down the line she could end up being their wife. And so there would have been a lot of conversations of don't marry her. She's totally not my type. Or 
Have you seen her mom? You just know she's not going to age well. Come on, you got to make a different decision here. Would have been a much more intense sort of thing than now when we're like, oh, you know, it's, it's your choice. It's your decision. There would have been some strong opinions going on. And, and all of this is why when Ur, Judah's firstborn son, is killed by the Lord, we read in verse 8, and Judah, the dad, said to Onan, the next oldest son, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. Can't figure out why I've never seen this in a children's Bible before. It must just be an oversight here. So, so Onan, if you'll notice, Onan has, he has no problem having sex with his dead brother's wife. No objection there. He's good with that part of the deal. But, but then when the moment comes when he might get her pregnant, he... Uh, he ensures that doesn't happen. And if you're not tracking with me, I'll leave that exciting discovery for you in your own studies this week. You can figure it out. But we're told that he does this specifically because he does not want to give his brother an heir. Now, now why would that be the case? Well, it would be because as long as his brother's family line had come to an end, his own family line would move into pole position in the family hierarchy he would be essentially the firstborn, which means he would become the leader of the family. He would become the patriarch. He would receive the double portion of the inheritance when the time came. It was a position, and it was about receiving greater inheritance. And so he doesn't want to do the right thing. He doesn't want to honor his brother. He doesn't want to take care of his brother's family line. He just wants to exploit the situation. He wants the sex, but he doesn't want any of the responsibility. He wants to make sure that he gets his own line into first place in the family. This is about family politics. But God has an opinion on this. Verse 10, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. And I, I, I can't help noticing again that, that I think what we're supposed to notice here is that Onan was a man who wanted all the fun of sex without any of the responsibility of sex. And so the Lord killed him. And this is the moment in my study when I realized that, that this is a great chapter, full of so much life application. And in fact, this is a Bible study that I'll be doing with my daughter's boyfriends in the future. It's going to be a good time, and I would commend it to you other fathers of daughters out there. What a great practical teaching to share in the future uh, with your daughter's boyfriends. Now, I should also mention that there are some people who try to argue by this passage that God is is making a statement about birth control being immoral. You know, people are saying, well, well, that's the deal here. I mean, he tried to use a form of birth control and God hates it so much he killed him. But that's not what this is about. The Bible tells us that's not what this is about. As we explained, this is about a man accepting sex but refusing the responsibilities that came along with it. This is about a man failing to honor his family, failing to honor his dead brother and essentially uh, spitting on his brother's grave. And so I don't want to get sidetracked, but, but all I'm going to say about the issue of, of birth control and family planning is this. One, if you use a form of birth control you should research how it works. There, there are some forms of birth control that work by actually uh, killing the egg after it's been fertilized, and I think there's some ethical and biblical issues with that from a life perspective. So, so think about that. But then secondly, I shared this close to the beginning of our study in Genesis. You know, God created the earth in six days. And after everything he created, he, he looked at it and he said, 
it is good. It is good. It is good. Now, did God stop creating because he couldn't create anymore? Did he stop creating because he ran out of ideas? Did he, did he get to like the manatee and he's like, yeah, I'm not even trying anymore. I mean, like, did he, did he just like run out of ideas? No, he stopped because he looked at what he had created and he said, it is good. And you know what? It's enough. It's enough. And when God created man, he gave us the ability to create life. And he also gave us the ability to look at what we had created and say, it is good and it is enough. We've reached the sixth day. And so that's what we believe is the biblical teaching about the issue of family planning and birth control. God gave us the ability to create life and he also gave us the ability to decide when it's enough. I know there's some people who just essentially believe you don't do any type of family planning, no type of birth control, you just have every child that the Lord can give you and, and I'm in awe of that position. Uh, God bless them, I respect it, but I don't believe it's the only viewpoint that is backed up by scripture. So. Back to our story. If you're keeping score, Tamar has now had two out of two husbands killed by the Lord for their evil ways. And if you're a parent and the Lord has to personally kill two of your kids because they're so evil, you might not be doing a great job as a parent. But apparently, Judah doesn't feel this has anything to do with his parenting style, which is why we read in verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. So apparently Shelah is not yet at an appropriate age to marry. So Judah says, why don't you just go stay with your father at his house until Shelah reaches the age of marriage. And then Judah said, lest he also die like his brothers. In other words, clearly the common denominator is you, Tamar, and I'm not taking any unnecessary chances with my next son. Now obviously the common denominator is not Tamar, it's that Ur and Onan had both lived evil and wicked lives so bad that the Lord had to intervene and kill them both. Then we read, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So Judah's bummed out that his wife has just died, and to try and bring himself some comfort, he goes to hang out with his pagan buddy Hira in the pagan town of Timnah. Timnah, by the way, Bible trivia, is the same city that in the future will be visited by, anybody? This is an obscure one. Samson. Samson. That's where Samson is going to run into some Philistine hotties, and that's not going to end well either. So this is likely around the end of March. The sheep shearing season is, is a very short time, and it's sort of the culmination of the whole year of shepherding when it's time to shear the sheep. And, and all the shepherds who worked for someone like Judah would normally be separated. They'd be out in their fields caring for the sheep. But when it was shearing time, they would all get together and all shear the sheep in one place so that the wool was all collected in one place. And to kick off that time of them all coming together, the culmination of the year of shepherding basically, they'd have what would in essence be a massive kegger, just this huge, huge party to celebrate the end of the shepherding year. And the owners of the sheep would usually foot the bill for these parties, which is part of the reason Judah decides to head up there as well, to go hang out with his shepherds. There's nothing wrong with Judah going to hang out with his shepherds, but his mistake is that he's gonna choose to go stay for a while in a pagan town with a pagan friend who's into pagan things, which means he's probably gonna end up 
in some pagan things as well. Verse 13, and it was told Tamar saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shalah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. So here's what's happening. Time passes. Shalah reaches the age of marriage, but there's radio silence from Judah. No word to Tamar. And she realizes that Judah has no intention of keeping his word to her. No intention of following through on his obligation to have Shalah marry her and take care of her. So she dresses up like one of the region's pagan temple prostitutes. And as we've mentioned before, one of the ways you would worship the, the pagan gods of this area was for about one week a year, whether you were a man or a woman, uh, you would go work in the pagan temple as a prostitute. And then all the money that you raised through prostitution would be given to the temple as sort of a form of fundraising. And other people who hired you, that would be their act of worship. And you being available for hire, that would be your act of worship. And so the woman would wear a veil that would cover their, their face even while doing the deed because if your neighbor or uncle hired you, it'd be super awkward to make a, a ludicrous understatement, basically. And yes, to state the obvious, this is all horrendously messed up and weird. But as we've been saying, this was the pagan practice in the area at the time. The family of Jacob, God's people, were supposed to have nothing to do with any of this. Verse 15 when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you, classy guy. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So Judah's just making one bad decision after another here. But it, it's a tragic reminder that when you hang out in the place of temptation, you greatly increase the odds of you falling for that temptation. It's not rocket science. When it comes to playing with temptation, the Bible says it's like playing with fire. And what happens when you play with fire? Well, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, tells us in Proverbs 6.27, can a man take fire to his bosoms? Can you scoop fire into your lap and his clothes not be burned? So write this down. Judah's decision to spend time in the place of temptation leads to giving in to temptation. Leads to giving in to temptation. There's no way to play with fire and not get burned. We keep reading. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? So they're negotiating the price now. And he said, I'll send a young goat from the flock. The old paying for a prostitute with a goat move. To put that in context, it was a, it was a good payment for the, for the day and for the situation. If you were a prostitute, that was, that was a good fee. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? She says, you know, that's a good rate. That, that's a good deal, but... Pretty obvious you don't have the goat with you right now and I'm gonna need more than just your word that you're gonna come back and pay later. So I need you to leave something as a, as a security deposit. Then he said to her, well, well, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that's in your hand. His signet would have been either a ring or possibly a medallion that bore some sort of family seal. It could be used for proof of identification. It could be used as a legal signature on documents and, and things like contracts. It was basically his ID. It was his passport. It was his driver's license. 
His cord actually translates more accurately, and some of your Bibles will probably say it as, as bracelets. These are likely gaudy gold bracelets that were an old school style of bling, just, just like a giant old school gold chain, a way to let everybody know that you're, you've got a lot of cash, sort of like walking around flashing a high-end credit card all the time. And his staff would have been just that, a staff. And it would have been representative of your position in life and business. And it's a good way of saying it. It told people about your reputation. So she literally says the equivalent of, you know, uh, just for safekeeping, why don't you leave with me your driver's license, uh, your credit card, and uh, your reputation? And we got a deal. Now, can we all agree that if you're making bad life choices, if you're hooking up with a prostitute, and you're hoping to keep it a secret, the last thing you would want to do is leave all that stuff with her. It's just, just a bad, bad move. It's insane, and yet we read, then he gave them to her. He gave them to her. How does that happen? Well, the same way it happens in our day and age. Lust is a powerful, powerful force. It's just as powerful today as it was back then. And this is the issue, write this down. When we're controlled by lust, We don't stop to count the cost. We don't stop to count the cost. All Judah's thinking about is sex. So he's thinking about that, I can get it right now. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever you need, whatever you need. So when you're controlled by lust, you're incapable of counting the cost, of thinking rationally. Lust makes you behave irrationally and impulsively. In other words, it it makes you only care about what you're getting right now with no concern about what the future consequences are. In, In fact, it completely blinds you, makes you incapable of thinking what the future consequences might be. That's why it's so dangerous to play around with lust because when it gets a hold of you, in the moment, your decisions make sense to you even when they're completely insane. If there ever was a sin that should be compared to playing with fire, it's lust. That's why we see Judah behaving so irrationally and impulsively. We read, then he gave him to her and he went into her. And if that wasn't bad enough, we read, and she conceived by him. And this was her plan. This has been her plan all along. It's a horrendous plan, but it worked exactly as she hoped. You see, in her mind, if Judah wasn't going to honor his obligation to her by marrying her to his son, then she was going to find another way to obligate him to her. And now she's accomplished that because she's pregnant with his child and now he's going to be obligated to her because of this child. While we love to tell ourselves that, that we can keep our sin contained, that our sin's only going to affect us, especially when it comes to lust, it's never the truth. So write this down. Judah's refusal to do the right thing led others into sin as well. Judah's refusal to do the right thing led others into sin as well. Instead of being a, a model of the believer and leading this woman, Tamar, to follow the Lord, he instead leads her into horrendous sin because she feels like this is the only way that she can be taken care of in life. She has to find a way or she's dead. And so this is the plan she comes up with. And it's all because of Judah's failure to honor his word. And again, I can't figure out why I haven't read this story in any children's Bible. Just must be the pictures are too hard to draw or something like that. But, but verse 19 we read, So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she went back to her normal life. 
And Judah sent the goat by the hand of his friend the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. Apparently Judah thinks it would be too risky for him to walk around and try and find her again and deliver the goat. So he has his buddy hire a do it for him. Because hiring a prostitute wasn't risky, but in his mind this is what he does. And then we read, but he did not find her. Then he, that's Hira, asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. This is probably the the moment when Judah starts thinking, well, that's not good. That's not good. Verse 23, then Judah said, "Uh, uh, let her take him for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and and you've not found her. He says, you know what, Let's, uh, let's just forget about the whole thing. Let her keep my stuff. I mean... I can't go around the area asking, hey, has anyone seen that prostitute because she has my uh, driver's license uh, credit card and uh, reputation. He says, everyone's going to mock me like I'm some sort of idiot, which he was. After all, I mean, I I sent the goat. I kept my part of the deal. I'm a solid dude. Now, Now, isn't it sad that Judah kept his word to Tamar when he thought she was a prostitute, but not when he thought she was family? He treats her better when she's acting as a prostitute than he does when she was family. Verse 24, and it came to pass about three months after. Now just notice this. Whenever we sin and try and hide it, there's almost always this this period of time when we think we've gotten away with it. We think we've gotten away with it. We think it's all just going to blow over. No one's going to be the wiser, but... What the Bible says is true. Numbers 32, 23, make sure your kids know it. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. It's not that God's going to punish you or God's going to make sure that you don't get away with it. It's that there are natural consequences to your sin. And when it comes to lust, there's no way to escape the consequences. They're going to show up sooner or later. And I always say this. If you're thinking, hey, you know, Jeff, you're, you're scaring me. Good. Good. Because it is scary and knowing this is meant to help us choose the path of life instead of the path of destruction. So it's three months later that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlotry. So somebody tells Judah, I just found out your your ex-daughter-in-law Tamar has been working as a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Now, Now what would we expect Judah's reaction to be? I mean... I would expect it to be something along the lines of, hey, you know what? Let's not rush to judgment. I mean, I mean who are we to cast the first stone? We, we all have our faults, don't we? I'm sure we've all done things that we regret, and uh, I'd like to think that we'd all be gracious to each other if those things ever came to life, you know, hypothetically. That's what I would expect. That's, I mean, that's what I would do if I were him in that situation, but check out what his reaction actually is. So Judah said, what? Bring her out and let her be burned. And this, this was the cultural practice in many places at this time in history. Adultery got you burned to death. And I think it's safe to assume it was a, a pretty effective deterrent. Now, how can this possibly be Judah's reaction? How can this possibly be his reaction? I'll tell you. But you've got to brace yourself because this one's going to hurt a little bit, okay? We'll write this down. This is why it's his reaction. It's amazing how terrible my sin looks on somebody else. It's amazing how terrible my sin looks on somebody else. 
You know, when I do it, it was just a bad choice that I made. When they do it, it's harlotry. It's whoring, it's adultery, it's sexual immorality. When I do it, well, you don't know what I was going through at the time. When they do it, I'm not even sure if they're saved. When I do it, you know, the situation deserves grace. But when they do it, the situation deserves wrath, wrath. It's amazing how terrible my sin looks on somebody else because we're all prone to hypocrisy. And we can all agree on this. I mean, even if you were here and, and you were a non-believer, you'd, you'd probably agree with me. You'd be comfortable agreeing with what I've just said. Uh, but, but here's the problem. The non-believer's solution to this predicament is, well, well, clearly what we should do then is never judge anybody for anything ever. I mean, I mean clearly that's the solution to the issue of hypocrisy. And I got to tell you, church, I, I despair over the number of believers that I see buying into that same idea. The number of believers who seem to think that all forms of judgment are bad and wrong is incredible to me. Even worse is the number of believers who are under the impression that the Bible teaches we're never supposed to judge anyone for anything, ever. The reason it's so terrible is because that's not what the Bible teaches. It's on your outlines. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Underline the word outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? Underline inside. But those who are outside, God judges. So Paul, the great apostle says, non-believers, those outside the church, they're to be left to God to judge. But we are to judge those who are inside the church. In other words, we can't expect non-believers to act like followers of Jesus. That's an unrealistic expectation. But we should expect believers to live like followers of Jesus. We don't hold each other accountable because we think we're perfect. That's not why we do it. We do it because the standard isn't us. The standard is Jesus. We don't go out into the world and live lives that represent each other. We live lives in the world that represent Jesus. And because we care about the reputation of Jesus, we're supposed to hold each other to the standard of actually living like we're followers of Jesus. Because we care about the reputation of Jesus. Jesus wants us to judge fellow believers. But Jesus hates it when believers judge hypocritically. That's why Jesus said, it's also on your outlines, he said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but fail to notice the beam in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when the beam is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First remove the beam from your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to do what? To remove the speck from your brother's eye. What Jesus is saying is that the believer wrestling with porn addiction cannot go to another believer who's wrestling with porn addiction and tell them you need to repent because he'd be a hypocrite. He's got no credibility. Jesus told us that what should happen though is there should be believers around that person who's in sin who are walking in sexual purity who can call the brother who's not to repentance without being hypocrites. And I've met a lot of believers who, who believe that if you have any sin in your life, 
If you're falling short in any area of your life, then you can't ever call out another believer's sin because you're being a hypocrite. Well, what's the problem with that? Problem's obvious. There's only ever been one sinless man, and his name was Jesus Christ. And if he's the only one who's qualified to ever call anyone to repentance, then Jesus wouldn't have said, first remove the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He would have said, try to remove the beam from your own eye. You won't be able to, because as soon as you do, there'll be another beam in your eye. So don't even plan on calling your brother out, because there's always going to be an issue, and you're always going to be a hypocrite. He would have said that, but he didn't. He didn't. He was letting us know that we can't call another believer to repent in an area that we're also struggling in. But we can call another believer to repent in an area that we're walking in godliness in. And the solution Jesus offered was that we should repent ourselves, walk in righteousness, so that we can call each other to repentance when necessary without being hypocrites. Now let's just be honest for a second. Let's get really real. Most of us wish it were true that Jesus had said, never judge anyone for anything ever, don't we? I mean, we wish that was true. Not only because we'd love to be able to play that card whenever anyone called us out on our sin, but equally because none of us wants to call another believer out on their sin, right? I mean, nobody wants to do that. Would anybody here be excited about having to confront another believer about their sin? Or your spouse or a family member or a a friend? There's nothing in me that would look forward to sitting down with somebody in my church and having to risk them being angry with me, leaving the church, never speaking to me again, and trashing me as a judgmental jerk in every conversation they have with people about why they left the church. There's nothing in me that's like, man, I I hope I get the chance to confront someone this week. That would be awesome. Nothing. And yet here's what I know about you as well. It's not something you want to seek out either. It's not something you're looking to do. Why? Let's share the real reason. Because we're selfish. 99.99% of the time, We're not actually interested in what's best for the other person. We're interested in what's best for us. And we generally think that what's best for us is what's easiest for us. So guess what? When my brother's sinning, I would way rather be the guy who says, you know what? I know you're going through a lot right now and none of us is perfect. Just want you to know that I love you. I'd way rather be that guy than the guy who says, you know, I I love you, man. And because I love you, I have to let you know that what you're doing is sin and it's not okay. Even though you're going through a really hard time, it doesn't make this okay. You're sinning against God and you're going to bring a whole lot of damaging things into your life and your relationships. So you gotta stop and you gotta repent before you start reaping all the consequences of what you're doing. Way rather be the first guy. And and here's the lie we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that being the first guy is acting in love. (laughs) But it's not. It's not because the reason we're choosing to be the first guy is actually because it's what's easiest for us. Not because it's what's best for them. Write this down. Real love does what is best for the other person. No matter the cost. Real love does what's best for the other person. 
no matter the cost. If we really loved them, we would do everything we could to stop them from heading down a road that we know is going to lead to heartache and pain, even if it risks our relationship with them. But most of the time, we'd rather have them like us. We'd just rather have them like us. We love ourselves more than we love them. And so we don't confront the sin in each other's lives. May God forgive us for the times we've, we've loved ourselves more than our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God help us to, to truly love each other more than we love ourselves, even if it costs us something. Well, Judah chooses to be a, a giant hypocrite and demands that Tamar be burned to death. So they get this fire ready. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law. So, so she's being brought out. They're, they're stoking up the fire here, this group of villagers. And she says, uh, where's Judah at? Can I, have him, uh, can I have him step forward for a minute? You can picture the scene. Judah comes marching in from the back, his chest puffed up with righteous indignation before the, the gathering crowd. And then, then Tamar says, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. So knowing full well what she's doing, Tamar says, you know, I don't know exactly who knocked me up, Uncle Judah, but he did leave all this stuff with me. Does anybody know who this belongs to? Judah, do you know anybody who's missing a signet ring with a giant J? I mean, any, anybody? Can, can you imagine the moment when Judah realizes what has happened? When he realizes what is happening in front of a live studio audience? It's that moment when you're caught in your sin. You're not just caught, but you realize that there's no way to hide it anymore. There's no damage control options left. Because I always say, and if you're a parent, you gotta know this with your kids. Everybody's first reaction when they get caught is to lie. Please don't ever be surprised when people lie when they get caught because everybody lies when they get caught all the time. It's the human reaction. Second thing then, when you get caught and you can't lie, you try to figure out the bare minimum of truth you can share, don't you? What's the smallest percentage of the truth that I can share and what's the most that I can keep concealed to, to make them think that I fully revealed the truth? But th this is the moment where you realize you've lost complete control. You can't minimize it. You can't share only part of it. It's just all out there for the world to see. And in those moments, we either have to realize that God's word has come true, our sin has found us out, and we need to humble ourselves and repent, or we dig our heels in in pride and still refuse to repent and just get mad and bitter instead. And to Judah's credit, he at least recognizes what's happened and, and he repents. Verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shalah, my son. So Judah acknowledges that, that he's the one who's truly sinned. He's the one who created this whole situation by not honoring his word to Tamar. He's the one who got her pregnant. And this is the lesson here. We're gonna look at three characteristics of true repentance. So write this down. Repentance means taking responsibility for one's sins. 
taking responsibility for one's sins. It wouldn't have been repentance if Judah had said, yeah, well, you know, two of my sons had already died after being married to you, so I didn't want my third one to die, so I'm perfectly justified in what I did. That, that's not repentance. Repentance means you stop blaming other people, you stop blaming the situation, you stop blaming circumstances, and you say, no, I did this because I chose to do this. It was my choice and it's on me. And the implication in the rest of the text and the rest of the story is that he, he honored his financial obligations to Tamar by providing for her for the rest of her life. He took care of her financially. So, so write this down. Second characteristic of true repentance. Repentance means doing everything possible to make amends. Everything possible to make amends. There, you caught me. I did it. Sorry, shouldn't have done it. If there's something you need to do to fix it, you, you got to do it. You gotta pay someone back if you took property from them or damaged it. You gotta apologize verbally if that's what you need to do. Whatever you need to do to make amends, you gotta do that if you're truly repentant. And then we read about the third part of repentance. It says, and he never knew her again. <laughs> he never slept with her again. Good job. Way to figure out the obvious there. But repentance also means turning away from that sin. It means turning away from that sin. Not only doing whatever is necessary to make amends, but doing whatever is necessary to turn away from that sin. That's what repentance means. It means to change direction, to change course. If you need to get accountability software on your computer and phone and have your wife as your accountability partner, repentance means you do it. If to have to throw away all the alcohol in your house and never touch it again, you do it. If you need to find another job, so you're not around that coworker, you do it. If you need to leave that group of friends and never see them again because you realize that you just keep getting into situations that you shouldn't be in when you're around them, if you gotta break off those friendships, if you're really repenting, you're gonna do it. If you're not, really get this, if you're not willing to do whatever it takes, then you haven't really repented. If you're not willing to really do whatever it takes, then you haven't really repented. If you've still got a closet full of candy in your kitchen, you can't simultaneously say, this is the year I take my health seriously. You, you can't do that. You gotta get rid of it. You gotta do whatever it takes so that the words you're saying line up with your actions and your choices. And if you're not willing to do whatever it takes to turn away from that sin, then you haven't really repented. And you need to know that. We need to know that. Verse 27, changing gears. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez, which means breach or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerech, which means a rising of light. So what is, what is this all about? Really weird paragraph, not in the flow of the story at all, not really seemingly connected to what's going to come in the next chapter, but, but if you know your Bible, then you know about the scarlet thread that's woven throughout the Old Testament, this red thread that points prophetically ahead to Jesus and his blood, and there's signs of it all the way through the Old Testament. Joseph is going to be a part of that scarlet thread in the Old Testament. That's where our minds should go when we see this phrase, looking to a link for Jesus. And, and Bible scholars tell us there is a picture here 
it's not a crystal clear picture. It's a little bit lost in translation. It would come across more strongly to a Jewish reader, but I'll just give you the general idea. The basic idea here is that the womb is representing the grave, the tomb that Jesus would be laid in, and so we see one child having a, a scarlet cord wrapped around his wrist before he disappears back into the womb, representing Jesus who would shed his blood and die on the cross before disappearing into the grave. And then we see the other child unexpectedly bursting forth and being given the name that means like a rising of light, representing Jesus' shocking and unexpected resurrection from the grave. The idea is that both children point to an aspect of Jesus' death and resurrection in that passage. That's what that's all about. Well, what's in this chapter is, is so important that God interrupted the story of Joseph to share it with us. And, and the lessons in this chapter are so big, they can change the course of a person's life if you heed them, and they can derail a person's life if we refuse to heed them. But the danger is that we hear this and we think, you know, that's a good word, that's important. I know a lot of people who really need to hear that because that, that's not an issue for me. I'd, I'd never get involved in that sort of sin. I'm just way past that. I've sort of moved on to more challenging aspects of the faith. but. But that's exactly what Satan wants you and I to think. Because that way we'll never see it coming. We'll never see it coming. We'll have our guard down. And if there's one thing I've learned about sin, it's that we're all far more susceptible than we think we are. Far more susceptible. You read the Bible and you realize that whoever you are, there's people a lot greater than you who fell into this type of sin. They're littered all over the Old Testament scriptures. And the wise and mature believer recognizes their own susceptibility to sin and then makes changes in the way they live their life to stay away from the place of temptation. That, that's wisdom. There's nothing cool or, or mature about playing with fire. You're just, just going to get burned. The wise and mature believer is the one who says, hey, you know what I've learned? You don't pick up freaking fire and play with it. You just, just don't do that. That's smart. It's the fool who says, oh, look what I can do with this fire. It's not going to end well for them. And so I would just encourage you in, in your life, be wise. Stay far away from sin. Stay far away from lust. Men, one of the worst forms of hypocrisy is to engage in sexual sin that would break your heart to see your own daughter involved in. That's what Judah did. He was involved in sexual sin that outraged him to find out that his daughter might have been involved in, his daughter-in-law. Whether it's a, a physical affair or internet porn or, or movies or TV shows that you're watching, if it would break your heart to see your own daughter involved in that, don't be a part of it. Don't be a part of it. Don't be another viewer. Don't be another customer. Don't get involved with it. Don't be Judah to any degree, to any degree. And I just want to read the, the full section of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 6. I'll, I'll read it to you. I couldn't fit it on your outline, but it's Proverbs 6, 27 to 32. It says, can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her, shall not be innocent. The idea is adultery and dabbling with that is like playing with fire. And what did Jesus say? He says he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her. People do not despise a thief 
if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he's found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. The idea there is that, is that hey, you know, if, if someone steals to feed themselves, people will understand it. But even him, he'll have to make it right. He'll have to pay it back exponentially. And what Solomon is saying is, though, when you get involved in sexual sin, you're showing that you lack understanding because how are you going to make that right? How are you going to pay that back? You can't take it back. There's no dollar amount. There's no restitution you can make. He says you're not thinking straight. You lack understanding because when you get involved with that, you're destroying your own soul and the effects of that sexual sin are going to affect you in some way for the rest of your life. They will. That's the truth. So Solomon says when you get involved in that stuff, you lack understanding. You're letting lust take over. You're not considering what the cost is going to be in the future. Nobody gets away with it. Nobody gets away with it. Again, am I scaring you? Good, good, because it's true. The effects of sexual sin are tragic, they're terrifying, and you will get burnt. You will get burnt. I won't ask for a show of hands, but most of us in this room could testify to the truth of this. It's true, we know it is. Judah's story teaches us that if you're a believer who's involved with a secret sin, you need to confess and repent because things won't get better until you do. They won't get better. But here's the good news. They really, they really can get better. They can get better. God really can heal. He really can restore. There really is hope if you're caught in sin. You know, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, shows up in Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. She's in there. But then in heaven... Jesus identifies himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's amazing grace. That is amazing grace. Man, we love that phrase. It's like a Christianese phrase. The lion of Judah. Have you read the story of Judah? Why would, why, why would you do that? Because it's amazing grace. No matter what you've done, if you'll confess and repent, God can write a different ending to your story. One far better than you might think is possible. Far better. Judah's story ends. We don't know how he gets there, but God does something in him. And his story ends with Jesus being part of his family line and not being ashamed to say it in heaven. But God can't start working on that new ending until you confess and repent. Can't start until you do that. If you're caught in some type of secret sin, Step one is to confess to the Lord, repent to the Lord, seek forgiveness from the Lord. Take communion today as we worship and pray in a minute so that you understand that you're forgiven. Your sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus. But then if you're really gonna repent, you gotta make amends. You gotta go repent to anybody that, that you've offended and you've hurt. And I know that's hard and I know that's terrifying. And I also know the lie of Satan that is, it would be better if they just never knew. That's the best way to handle this. And I'll just tell you that that sin that doesn't get dealt with will, will be a cancer on your life, on your marriage. It will eat away at you. It will damage your relationship. And your spouse will wonder what in the world is going on. 
They won't know because there hasn't been confession. So there can't be understanding. So if you're there, repent to the Lord and then repent to anyone who's been affected by it and ask their forgiveness. And a bit of practical advice would be give them time to grieve. Give them time to be offended. Don't demand forgiveness. We don't have the right to do that. We don't have the right to demand forgiveness. You confess because that's your part of the equation. Forgiveness is their part. You confess because that's what God wants you to do. And then you leave their forgiveness to them and the Lord for them to work that out. I know it's a heavy word, but we need to hear it. And we need to be reminded that that there's a cost to this stuff. And, And as a parent as well, I would just say, as weird as it is, man, share this sort of stuff with your kids. Share with them about the consequences. It's so much more useful than just sharing. Sex outside of marriage is bad. Sexual sin is bad. It's so much more productive to share. Man, I, I want to save you from pain and heartache and disaster because when lust gets control of your life, it'll destroy your life. It'll ruin your life. Let, let them know that. Let them know it. And with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, a, a heavy word from your word tonight. But oh, how we need it, God. How we need not just the encouragement and the good news, but how we need to be reminded about the danger and the cost of sin, about how it affects us and those that we love. Father, I just ask that you would give us honesty right now and and courage to examine ourselves in light of your Holy Spirit, that you would just illuminate any secret sin in our life that hasn't been dealt with, Uh, that's a foothold to the enemy that that is allowing Satan to shame us, to drag us down into guilt when you desire to set us free and put us on the path to healing and restoration because that's who you are, that's what you do. Father, if there's any among us caught in that situation, I, I just pray for courage and bravery to confess, to get things into the open so that they can lose their power. And so that healing and restoration can begin. Thank you that you are a God who heals. You're a God who restores. You're a God who brings the dead back to life. And so, Father, I pray for faith in each of us to believe that that is true. Lord, we marvel that in heaven you introduce yourself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It reminds us that when we arrive in your presence and spend eternity with you, you will not be ashamed of us, God. You're not ashamed to be identified with us. You're not ashamed to have us bear your name as Christians. That you have made us clean. You've paid for our sin. You've washed us in your blood. You've made us righteous, God. And you delight in having us as brothers and sisters in your family. Thank you for what you've done for us and to us, Jesus. We love you for it, God. Just be still before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to you. Allow him to do work in your life and, and welcome it. Invite it. And if you're just terrified to respond to what he's asking you to do, just ask him for help. Ask him for courage. Ask him for bravery. He came that you and I could have life and have it abundantly. That's what he wants for us. 
His desire is that none of us would be a slave to sin or guilt or shame, but that we would be free from that. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.